This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. Can our desire to overcome the climate crisis drive humanity's next great waves of positive technological, economic, and social revolutions? Or will we be plunged into the dystopian collapses and terrors of civilization's past? That's the question asked by Dr. Tim Flannery in his new book, Atmosphere of Hope, Searching for Solutions to the Climate Crisis. Flannery rocked the world with his 2003 book, The Weather Makers, For a while, the Australian government hired him to coordinate climate communications. He left to form the Climate Council with community funding. Flannery is also with the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne. He's trained as a specialist in mammals and paleontology. We're about to hear Tim Flannery speak about his new book at the Town Hall in Seattle on November 12, 2015. I thank Mike McCormick of Talking Stick TV for this recording. Here is Dr. Tim Flannery. What I'd like to do this evening is just lay out to you the basic thesis or basic idea behind the book that I've just published called Atmosphere of Hope. Um, Ten years ago, I wrote a book called The Weathermakers that really tried to alert people to the danger of the the climate problem as it was then. I thought at some stage I might follow up with with another book dealing with how things had gone, but um, I put off writing because... I didn't want to depress people, quite frankly. <laughs> Things were, like, really bad for so long. Even I was getting depressed. And I'm normally a fairly kind of, you know, up person. But uh, I tell you, after, you know, the Copenhagen debacle, um, I spent three years as chair of the Copenhagen Climate Council and uh, gave a big part of my life to it. And uh, to see that fall apart and then to see us continue on this worst-case scenario emissions trajectory where, you know, we were emitting more greenhouse gases than... Than, 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 you know, the scientists thought was barely possible for a decade. I mean, we've just come through a, a massive decade of lost opportunity in terms of emissions. So there wasn't a lot to be too rosy about. But in the last 18 months, I would guess, I think things have really started to change around. That great social machine that we started building here, well, probably earlier than 2007, but at least my engagement of it was when I came here in 2007 and felt the energy of people here, is really starting to gain traction. It takes a long time to change society, and doing what we have done in a decade, I think, has been pretty spectacular. But before I go on to those reasons for hope, I really think I need to outline to you where we are in terms of climate change. At the end of that decade uh, of lost opportunity, So say, well, let's call it 2014. Um, That year, we put into the atmosphere about 40 gigatons of carbon dioxide. It's an easy number to say, but a very difficult one to comprehend. Um, And the only way I have really of gaining an understanding of what that 40 gigatons means is to 
do a bit of a thought experiment and to think, OK, what would we need to do by way of tree planting, for example, to draw just one-tenth of that volume of CO2 out of the atmosphere? And, of course, you know, trees are... They build themselves by drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere so we can understand. Uh, it's a pretty simple process to understand. So if we wanted to draw just four gigatons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, what we'd need to do is to plant an area around about the size of Australia with forest. And Australia is just a little bit smaller than the contiguous 48 states of the USA. So we'd need to set out and plant an area of forest the size of New York State every year for 50 years, reforesting Australia. Uh, and at the end of that 50 years, we would have drawn out, on average in any one year, four gigatons of carbon dioxide. But of course, if we did that, we would change the way the planet works. Australia is a continent of bright surfaces. We've got lots of deserts and salt lakes and grasslands. When sunlight hits those bright surfaces, it's reflected back into space and the planet isn't warmed by that sunlight. But if we planted forest over Australia, we'd have a dark canopy over that area. That canopy would absorb sunlight, transform some of it into heat energy, and we'd actually accelerate the heating of the Earth, even though we're drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere. So I guess my shorthand for thinking about those vast volumes of CO2, even if it's four gigatons, let alone 40, is that it's a volume of greenhouse gas that is really significant in terms of planetary function. So when we're dealing with those big volumes, we are changing the function of the planet. And we haven't just released 40 gigatons in 2014. We've been releasing somewhere between 30 and 40 gigatons of CO2 for well over a decade now. We've just heard, in fact, in the last week or so, that the cumulative impact of the, that release of greenhouse gases is to raise global temperature by about one degree Celsius above the pre-industrial average. It's about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. So what does that mean? Well, be, before the Industrial Revolution, the average surface temperature of the Earth was about 14 degrees. Now it's about 15 degrees. It doesn't sound like a huge change, but it has had a massive impact in terms of the extremes, extreme weather events particularly. Uh, and it's in, perhaps the best way to understand why that's happened is to think about the weather we experience in any given year. You know, through a year we'll have some really cold days, we'll have some really hot days, but most days are in the middle. So the weather, if you kind of plot its distribution, it forms like a bell curve, you know. You can imagine it, just a simple bell curve. Shift that bell curve a bit to the right, towards the hotter end, and imagine what happens to the hot weather end. You get a lot bigger area falling under the very hot end of the bell curve. You get some of it even sticking out beyond where the bell curve was before. So that's your record-breaking hot weather. There's still some cold days, but far fewer of them. The impacts of that shift in terms of the extremes is really driving some very, very unfavourable changes to our environment. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Australia just because you may be less familiar with what's happening in my country than, than in yours. But I think it's just telling that this is a global signature that we're now seeing. One of the most disturbing aspects of the current climate shift we've seen, uh, particularly in Australia, is the onset of heat waves of a an intensity and a duration and a frequency that we just haven't seen before. The reason heat waves worry us so much in Australia is because they are our number one killer. Um, you might, natural killer I should say, you, you might um, 
read about sharks eating people in Australia. I think 11 people were eaten by sharks off New South Wales this year. Um, that's, that's terrible, but it's small beer compared with what happens in terms of heat waves. In my city of Melbourne, um, which has been severely afflicted by heat waves, um, one particularly well-studied one in 2009 killed uh, 400 people in addition to those who would have died naturally over just a four-day period. And they're typically older people or sick people or very young people or socio uh, people who live with economic disadvantage just because they can't afford to get shelter in those very, very hot conditions. The heatwave problem is building uh, to the point where last year it interrupted Melbourne's greatest moment, really. Um, we host a, a sporting event called the Australian Open Tennis Championships. Do we, does anyone here watch the Australian Open? Yeah. Right, it, there, there is no other topic of conversation in Melbourne when the Australian Open's on. That's all that people are interested in. They're incredibly proud of it. We built this enormous great stadium. It's quite a modern one to, to house, the, house the championships in. And last year, climate-induced disaster struck. We had a three-day heat wave where temperatures were above 42 degrees Celsius for three days consecutively. That's up, I don't know the exact calculation, it's up above 110 Fahrenheit. Um, the temperature in the courts, however, peaked at in the low to mid-50s, which is really in the danger zone. Um, and clearly, Rod Laver Arena wasn't built with climate change in mind, even though the scientists have been warning for decades we were going to have heat waves. The people who built the stadium decided they didn't need to worry about that. But anyway... The consequences came home last year because uh, during that heat wave um, we had a thousand spectators treated by paramedics for heat stress and they weren't in the hottest part of the court. Um, finally, play had to be suspended, and I don't. You know, this is a big, big sporting event. You can imagine what the the contracts involving. Um, uh, distribution rights and broadcasting rights and sponsorship rights and things. There's hundreds of millions of dollars tied up in this stuff. So that had to be suspended because the players were in danger of their lives or in danger of, of, of dying. Now, I remember I got called up by the BBC, who, you know, they don't take notice of climate change in Australia very often in London, but they did when the tennis was disturbed, you know, because suspended. And the guy said, look, can you tell me, did cli is climate change responsible for this or not? And I said, well, look, we don't know yet. We've, it's just happened. We haven't been able to do the science. And he said, oh, there's no story then. We're not going to bother reporting it. Oh, that's great. Right. So about six months later, when scientists had done the incredibly painstaking work of gathering all the data, doing some simulations in their computer models to see what they get, and what they did was basically did two, two lots of computer runs. One where they included every factor known to affect the climate in southern Australia um, except the human uh, emitted greenhouse gases and the second run they included the greenhouse gases so they did 12,000 runs without the human impact only one run in 12,000 produced the sort of conditions that we actually saw on the ground in Melbourne during the Australian Open when you include the greenhouse gases that we've put into the atmosphere that becomes a commonplace outcome so we were able to say that without the human impact on the climate system we wouldn't have had that heat wave it's the first time in Australia, at least, where we've been able to tie a specific event um, to and attribute it directly to climate change. You know, before that, we had to hedge our bets a bit and say, well, climate change is an influence, but may not be the whole story. We know now that in that things are getting so extreme, and using that methodology, we can say that we were responsible. 
Um, of course, those heat waves lead on to many other undesirable outcomes. We are seeing massive bushfires in Australia. The 2009 heat wave that I mentioned that killed um, 400 people, um, that heat wave um, induced a bushfire on a scale and intensity the likes of which even in Australia we'd seen nothing like in, in our time. And I, I can't explain to you how enormous that fire was um, because you'd almost have to be there to experience it. But the, the official word was that once you saw the smoke on the horizon from that bushfire, it was too late to leave your home and try to seek refuge somewhere else. The fire was so intense and so fast-moving that once you saw the smoke, you were in, right in the firing line. We would have lost many, many more firefighters had the fire been slower because... Um, it was so fast, it beat the firemen to, to where they were headed. If they were in place, ready to fight it, uh, we would have had massive casualties. As it was, we lost 150 people uh, in that bushfire. And about a quarter of the state's koalas died as well between the, the heat wave and the bushfires. I mean, these are really, really big impacts we're seeing now. Um, in terms of extremes, uh, flout, the... the, the uh, flood and drought cycle. Australia is a land of drought and flooding rains, there's no doubt about it, but uh, in Queensland uh, in the last few years we've seen the most incredible events. In 2012, 80% of Queensland was declared a flood disaster zone, 80% of the state. Incredibly large numbers. In 2013-14, 80% of Queensland was declared drought-stricken. <laughs> so, I mean, we're used to having droughts and floods, but not like that. I mean, nothing... We just haven't seen that sort of thing before. Um, in terms of other impacts, all of this greenhouse gas is acidifying the ocean, um, and it's warming the ocean um, very considerably. Australia's Great Barrier Reef is suffering. Already about half of the Great Barrier Reef is dead as a result of those factors, plus land use and various other things. But... It's really, that environment is really under stress. I won't talk about other parts of the world just to, to save time, but you know, I think wherever I travel, I meet people now who understand climate change as a lived experience, whether they're farmers in Australia, uh, people in Africa, subsistence farmers in Africa, people in Europe or people in the US. People have got direct experience of how the climate has changed. I don't need to show graphs anymore. People know it. So that one degree has been bad enough, but the bad news for us is that the greenhouse gases are kind of slow acting, and the amount of greenhouse gas that we've put into the atmosphere already is enough to drive temperatures to one and a half degrees above the pre-industrial average. So we've got another half degree of temperature increase in the pipeline, and that means you know that even if we turned off the lights now and all walked home in the rain and never used another, never burned another drop of fossil fuel we'd still see temperatures rise to one and a half degrees. That is really bad news because the climate impacts from an increasing temperature aren't just linear. There are break points in, in the system. One of the ones that I worry about particularly is the fate of our Great Barrier Reef in Australia. It's an area the size of Germany. It's one of the most beautiful habitats you'll ever see. Um, but the scientists tell us that it simply cannot survive one degree of warming. So... You know, if you want to see the Barrier Reef, go and see it now, because in 30 years' time, once that one and a half degrees of warming that's going to be caused by the existing greenhouse gases becomes a reality, the Barrier Reef just isn't going to be a living entity as it is today, which is a very sad, sad outcome. Rising sea levels, um, food security issues, 
ocean acidification, there's a whole series of things we need to worry about that um, are all on the, the gloomy and dark side and, and one of the reasons I didn't write a book on climate change because I couldn't see a solution until recently to those sort of things. And I should just add that, you know, with the meeting in Paris that's happening in a few weeks' time is going to get us off that worst-case scenario emissions trajectory. We're, we're heading straight towards four degrees or more of warming by 2100 now, uh, given that scenario. Paris will get us off that and get us sort of halfway towards the two-degree mark. You know, kind of, you know, 2.73 degrees. There's some disagreement about the precise figures, but it'll be somewhere in that, in that, rain, in that range. So it's a step forward but it's not going to get us to a solution. Um, in fact, a solution with the current tools we've got is really hard to see because uh, even if you assume really rapid action on part of the whole global community to deal with this issue, the chances of us even having a 50-50 chance of avoiding two degrees is pretty slender. It's, you know, we're, we're, we've this decade of lost opportunity where we've had Stephen Harper and... Uh, you know, Bush in the early part of it and Tony Abbott in Australia has cost us, cost us very dearly. So what's changed that gives me hope? I just want to talk about one, um, one small, relatively small thing first, but I think it's quite telling. Um, the International Energy Agency earlier in the year produced a report that really surprised me um, and it surprised me because the International Energy Agency is hardly some screaming radical green organisation. You know, it has its own coal unit and its experts in fossil fuel use and all the rest of it. So the report they produced was quite astonishing. What it said, or the bottom line of the report, was basically that in 2014, the global economy grew at a time when emissions from the burning of fossil fuels for energy use stalled. So the fossil fuels we consumed for energy use didn't grow between 2013 and 2014, and yet the global economy grew. This was astonishing to me because we're used to seeing developed countries decouple economic growth from emissions growth. The US has done it, Australia's done it, Canada's done it, Europe's done it. But to think that it would happen at the global scale in 2014 is amazing. No one was expecting that decoupling to occur so early. Two of the drivers, I think, that are responsible for that outcome are, first, the incredible success of clean energy technologies in terms of penetrating the marketplace, and secondly, what I'll call for the moment energy efficiency, but we'll come back to that. Just to deal with the clean energy uh, first... You know, I've watched year on year as, as solar panels have been producing cheaper and cheaper electricity. You know, for the last 30 years, they've dropped their, the price of electricity 10% a year. They've got, you know, it's, it's amazing outcomes. The wind sector has been the same, and the wind sector and solar have got a long way to go. Um, you know, wind is booming now. I've, I've got a friend who lives in Vancouver who owns a, uh, or is, owns part of a wind energy company. He just signed a power purchase agreement, so an agreement to deliver electricity in Texas, um, at a cost of about, was somewhere 4, 4.5 cents a kilowatt hour. It was like, you know, I mean, that would have sounded like cloud cuckoo land last year, right? Six cents was where you'd be paying, you know, for that. So costs are going down. 
I work with um, Siemens, or I have worked with Siemens for a decade, and particularly their wind sector, and I see what they're doing. I mean, they're totally revolutionising the production of wind turbines. Their new turbines are going to be produced in containers, shipping containers. Every element in the turbine is going to be able to fit in a shipping container. It's going to just drive down the cost of installation hugely. Um, they no longer have gears in their wind turbines. They have these gearless wind turbines where the head itself is the, is the, is the turbine. There's hundreds less moving parts. The, the maintenance costs are way, way down. The blades of wind turbines run out, obviously, and have to be replaced. They're like propeller blades on an aeroplane. You know, They start to corrode over time. What Siemens are doing with these, and imagine a 90-metre-long turbine blade. You know, They're putting little 3D printers on the blades that run all the way up and back and just keep that blade in absolutely top condition. So, again, maintenance costs are down. If you're putting your turbines offshore, that counts a lot. The least maintenance you need to do, the better. So the cost of electricity from wind turbines in future is going to be about half of what it is now. So, I mean, these technologies are just taking over the marketplace. For three years running... We've had more investment in clean tech than we've had in fossil fuels in the energy sector. It's just a, it's an enormous change. So that's part of that decoupling, I think. But the other part that I would argue is at least as important as what I called energy efficiency. And what I mean by that is that, you know, for the last 20 years I've been kind of grumbling and going down to the shop and buying the latest cheap light bulbs and, you know, getting up on the ladder and changing them all on my, in my house. And I've been putting solar panels on the roof, even I, I rent in Melbourne now because I'm a bit down there short term for family reasons, but, you know, went to the landlord and said, can we put some solar panels on the roof and there's a great thing you do that. And you look around the rest of the street and who's changing our light globes and who's putting solar panels on the roof? Didn't look like a lot of people to me, so I sort of did it a bit grumpily, you know. But you realise that there actually is billions of people around the world doing that sort of stuff, you know. There's billions of people calling up their local council, or millions anyway, saying, could we have a bike lane? You know, people going into a, to buy their new car and buying a hybrid or, or some smaller car than what they had before. All of that has added up to a massive energy efficiency gain. It's been huge. In this country, um, you know, your year of peak oil demand is way, way in the past. In my country of Australia, our year of peak coal demand was six years ago. You know? So all of those efficiency gains means that we're just... We're using less and less fossil fuels, which is... Getting us, you know, helping contribute to that that decoupling that I mentioned, and I think we deserve a pat on the back. It's nights like this where everyone gets together who has been doing this sort of stuff. We need to recognise we've had a massive success, as as kind of tedious as it is doing all of those small things that seem to not add up to anything. They've actually added up to a huge outcome, in my view. So, I think that's really important. Five years before the Paris meeting agreement will start to take effect, which is 2020. We're seeing this decoupling. It might just buy us some time that we didn't think we had to get below two degrees. But as I said, there's enough gas in the air now to, um, to take us to one and a half degrees of warming, and I, I really hate that. I hate that fact. I really do, because it's going to cost me my barrier reef and my children the opportunity to see that marvellous thing. And my third cause of hope really came from a meeting that I had in 2007 with Sir Richard Branson. He had read The Weathermakers and invited me to Necker Island, where he has a house, and wanted to talk about climate change and what he could do about it. I, I Back then, I was pretty optimistic we were going to get a good outcome at Copenhagen and we'd be able to get on top of this problem. Richard 
didn't believe that for a second. He just said, I just don't think that humanity is capable of doing what needs to be done to avoid the problem. He said, what I'd like to do is to set up a prize, a prize uh, for technologies that have the capacity to draw enough CO2 out of the air to make a difference to our climate future. So we ended up calling it the Virgin Earth Challenge Prize. It's a £25 million prize, and it's for technologies that have the potential to draw one gigaton of carbon out of the atmosphere per annum. Now, when he set that up in 2007, I agreed to be a judge on the prize panel, but I was very pessimistic that we'd get entries that would amount to anything. Eight years later, we've had 11,000 entries. Uh, I've looked through them, I've carefully evaluated them, and I have become totally convinced that this approach, this approach of drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere, is going to be an indispensable part of our future. One of the things I found frustrating was that this wasn't being recognised anywhere. We didn't even have a name for this basket of technologies before. You know, some of the approaches people would refer to as geoengineering, others to agricultural practices and so forth, but there wasn't a name. So when I wrote my book, I thought I'll, I'll coin a name for this. I'll call it the third way. The reason I call it the third way is that the first and most vital way is reducing emissions. We all recognise that. That's what we've got to do. The second way, however is geoengineering, but geoengineering in really damaging ways. And I can see that the second way will be used if we dally much longer in this. And let me just explain the sort of geoengineering that people are considering at the moment. One of the options, and probably the cheapest and most widely favoured option, is to inject some sort of sulphur-based chemicals into the stratosphere which is you know, 12 kilometres or so above, above our head, up where the, um, the jetliners fly. If you do that, you have an instant effect cooling the planet. We know that because uh, large volcanoes sometimes erupt sufficient sulphur into the stratosphere to cool Earth, and we get these years without a summer. We, we know that happens. There's enough research being done on those options to show that it's really quite cheap there's, there's a few people who are probably living within 20 miles of us now who could individually fund a geoengineering proposal like that that uh, would change the, the climate of the earth. It's not that expensive, and there's probably more than one that could do it. Um, so we know it's cheap. We know it's instantly effective, right? It really does lower the temperature straight away. So if you're facing some dire problems related to temperatures, you can fix them. The third thing we know about the second way, geoengineering, using sulphur and so forth, is that it is incredibly dangerous. Um, it's dangerous because it has the potential to change Earth's uh, weather circulation patterns. So we know that if you put sulphur into the, into the stratosphere, you will affect the South Asian monsoon. There's 1.4 billion people who depend upon that monsoon for a living. We know we can... Uh, that the productivity of crops will decline. It's what's happened in years without a summer in the past when the sulphur's gone up naturally. And we know that underneath that sulphur, the problem of climate change will just keep festering away. The CO2 will keep increasing, the oceans will acidify, the very basis of life itself will be eroded. And if anyone decides that they've got to stop put putting the sulphur up uh, precipitously for any reason, the rebound in the climate system is likely to be extremely dangerous. 
The bad news is that there are a number of government agencies worldwide working on geoengineering solutions. The government of China alone has four major institutes or four major research groups working on these geoengineering solutions. China is likely to be quite severely affected by climate change and China is run by technocrats and engineers who understand that problem very well and they're hedging their bets. So the second way is something we want to avoid. The third way technologies I outline in the book are really different from the second way. They're they're all characterised by approaches, methods or technologies that strengthen Earth's self-regulatory system by pulling excess CO2 out of the atmospheres in ways that the Earth system already uses or in ways that basically simulate or mimic the way the Earth system operates. So it's dealing with the problem at base. I want to explain about some of those 11,000 solutions that we've seen in the prize and also some others that have come in um, subsequently. All of the approaches, all of the third-way approaches, really fall into two basic categories. One is, I can call the biological pathways. They depend upon sunlight as their power source and plants as the capture mechanism. They're really, really well understood. Um, you know, reforestation, um, you know, growing plants and and somehow storing the carbon. So I think that first example I gave you about Australia and how many plants, how many trees you need to plant to draw down four gigatons gives you a sense of the limits of the biological systems, though. Um, You know, we're already asking Earth system, particularly its land-based ecosystems, to feed us and house us and clothe us, provide our clean water and, and fresh air and everything else. So there are limits to the amount... I think we can do on land when we're dealing with a problem that is of many gigatons in scale. I think they'll contribute, but I don't think they'll be the full answer. So reforestation, it'll be an important tool, but it won't provide the full answer. It can't. It's just not of a scale that allows it to do it. The biochar industry, fantastic industry, and there's been great advances made here in the US and other parts of the world, is another option. With biochar, you take plant matter, turn it into charcoal, put it in the soil, and it'll, the carbon will stay there long-term, so it's out of the atmosphere, drawn out by the plants and then put into the soil. The old wood chemistry industries that used to be so, uh, you know, so um, prolific in this country might make a comeback. You know, before we had the petrochemical industries, we got all of our you know, plastics and, and many of our other chemicals from the old wood chemical industry. Chemists knew how to take cellulose and, and, and various other plant products and make a lot of valuable products from them. It may be that we'll start doing that at scale. Maybe that'll get us some gigatons, but it won't get us anywhere near where we need to be. You really have to leave the land surface and go to the oceans if you want to have great opportunity in terms of this. But with that great opportunity comes a vast increase in the unknowns and the uncertainties. The seaweed that grows off the coast here in Seattle... Um, that can grow at the at rate of half a metre a day. It grows 30 to 60 times faster than any land-based plants. And there was a great study done last year suggesting that if we could only cover 9% of the world's oceans in seaweed farms, we could draw down all of the atmospheric CO2 we put up in any one year. So offset completely the current emissions. And also, because the seaweed takes CO2 out of the atmosphere and buffers the ocean waters and makes them less acid, we could grow enough high-quality protein in the form of fish and seashells and prawns to give 200 kilograms per year to a population of 10 billion people. So I thought, that's fantastic. This sounds like the magic, the silver bullet that we've all been looking for, you know. 
But then I started looking into the problem a bit and thinking about it a bit more seriously. 9% of the world's oceans turns out to be a, a not insubstantial area. Uh, it's about four and a half times the size of Australia. To be honest. So, you know, we have about 500 square kilometres of seaweed farms off China when there's mixed, you know, aquaculture and seaweed farming. We sort of know how they work, but to go from that to even 1% of the world's ocean is an unbelievably large exercise. And then, you know, it occurred to me, what, what would we do with all of that seaweed? Are we just going to have it laying around in rotting piles or what? One option that's available is you could put the seaweed, seaweed into biodigesters and, and you know, make methane, which you'd then burn for electricity and send the electricity onshore, and then maybe take the CO2 from the tailpipe and where would you put it? Well, one option that's it, it, it's, it's only a desktop study at this moment is that you could try to put it in sediments in the ocean, maybe one or two miles down, and at that depth, the CO2 remains liquid. The pressure of the water column above it means that the CO2 doesn't try to escape all the time. So it's quite different from putting CO2 into land-based rocks, where, you know, there it's buoyant, it wants to escape. But in the ocean, that's not the case. And eventually it would form a solid in those, those sediments. But this is all just thinking. It's desktop at the moment. But, but it's possible. I want to just go now to the chemical-based technologies, which are, which are the second great silo, really, of, of, uh, of third-way approaches. Um, and they call, I call them chemical um, because they're very, very broad, but they all have one thing in common. They need an energy source, right? And that energy source at the moment is human-created electricity or transport fuels, you know, fossil fuels, to some extent. The first that we need to think about is, is uh, carbon-negative concretes. I don't know whether any of you have heard of these, but the concrete industry globally is responsible for about 5% of current emissions of greenhouse gases. People have invented this new product called carbon-negative concrete, which over its lifetime, as it sits there and cures, it, it absorbs CO2 into its structure. So it, 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 it gives us a gain in terms of reducing CO2. Its manufacturers claim that it's you know, cheaper, stronger and more durable than conventional concretes. So why aren't we all rushing out to use carbon-negative concretes? Well, tragically, or perhaps not so tragically, engineers and others involved in um, building things are pretty conservative in their approach. They know what Portland cement-based concretes do, They've, and we've got a history going back to Roman times. We know the stuff stands up, right? So no-one's going to go out and build a Sydney Harbour Bridge or a World Trade Centre out of carbon-negative concrete at the moment because it doesn't have a track record, you know? But there are things we could do to try to foster that, that industry. If we had a sectoral cap-and-trade system just on the concrete sector... Um, that would encourage the manufacture of carbon-negative concretes in low-risk environments where we could learn about its behaviour over time and start giving it that track record that it needs to start replacing Portland cement-based concretes. So there's a huge opportunity there. That opportunity really is on the gigaton scale. A second opportunity in the chemical pathways involves a particular rock type called serpentinites. And I suspect there's quite a lot of serpentinites in this area. They're rocks that form at the mid-ocean ridge and over geological time they get incorporated, uh, some of them at least, into con continents and become just part of the you know, landscape uh, around us. As those serpentinites weather, they capture CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, and it's a really important part of nature's way of getting rid of CO2 out of the system. If you could 
quarry and grind up five or six gigatons of serpentinite, you'd capture three or four gigatons of CO2. So it's quite a substantial amount. But, of course, the way we quarry things today, you've got to you know, use burnt fossil fuels, basically, to drive those trucks and, and then drive the hammers. It'll break the stuff up or the mills will break the rock up. But serpentinite is not just a kind of a desktop study. There, there is a company in the Netherlands uh, at the moment who makes roofing paint who includes serpentinite in their roofing paint and sells carbon-negative roof paints. Great idea. Never going to add up to a gigaton, but it's a good start. But there are people who are thinking, well, well, why don't we grind this stuff up on scale and use it to replenish beaches, use it as a substitute for beach sand? Because in an active environment like that, it'll start sequestering quite a lot of CO2. Other people think we can use it in playgrounds or as a soil amendment. There's yet others who think maybe we could use serpentinite in the smokestacks of shipping so that you could uh, capture CO2 from a smokestack but then drop the serpentinite into the oceans where it'll continue to absorb CO2 out of the ocean water. There's a lot of options there. And I think the greener that we can make our energy sector, the more prospect of these opportunities look. You don't want to be burning fossil fuels to capture CO2, but if we can green up the, uh, our electricity generation and our transport, then I think there's some real opportunities. The other options get they kind of much more prospective, but I do want to just cover off on them. I've held in my hand a little mobile phone cover made of plastic that was created out of atmospheric CO2. I know it's, it's probably the most expensive mobile phone cover in the known universe. In fact, it certainly is, but, but it exists. You know, People are making plastics out of carbon dioxide drawn from the atmosphere. There's capture mechanisms that are very well known. Um, we can incorporate the CO2 into products. It all takes energy, of course, but those plastics are solidified atmospheric CO2. They're a great way of getting CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it. If every bit of plastic we created today was made out of atmospheric CO2, uh, you would need to double world plastic production to pull a gigaton of carbon out of the atmosphere. That's about four gigatons of CO2. But it'll, it'll contribute, I think, over time. Just in the last two months, we heard about another fantastic breakthrough, the manufacture of carbon fibres from atmospheric CO2. Now, here in Seattle, you've got to know about carbon fibres. Boeing uses them in their Dreamliner, you know, as the skin of the aircraft. Um, they'd be more widely used if they were cheaper, right? but they're expensive. This technology of creating carbon fibres out of atmospheric CO2 is reported to be able to create those fibres at a fraction the cost of current production methods. Some estimates may be a tenth the cost. That's a massive breakthrough because once carbon fibres get cheap enough, they'll start competing head-on with aluminium and steel, and they're both really energy and, and carbon-intensive sectors. So they're taking a problem, atmospheric CO2, and turning it into a very powerful solution. I think, you know, who knows where that'll lead? Who knows? It's, it's just a bare announcement at the moment, but I think there's real potential there. At the other wacky end of the scale, I, I need to mention this, but the South Korean researchers about six weeks ago made an announcement that they had discovered a way of activating used coffee grounds um, to capture atmospheric methane, right? I never, I never, something I never occurred to me in my whole life could be possible, but they have done it. Um, and, you know, I guess if the Arctic starts melting and lots of methane goes in the atmosphere, we'll all be drinking 100 cups a day and sending the stuff off to South Korea to get activated and hopefully we'll have some sort of solution. But I just bring it up because it's, it's, it's kind of, it tells you we're at the very beginning of, of an industry here. And think about, think about it this way, that 
We know that the CO2 in the atmosphere now will be driving ever more disastrous climate change through to 2050 and beyond. We know that, right? It, and what that means, we know what the problem is that our children will be trying to solve in 2050, right? We know the third-way technologies, at least some of them, have, are the only way forward to deal with this. But we know also that there's long development pathways for all of these industries. Wind and solar teach us that. You know, it's going to be 30 years before we're at scale with the most prospective of these industries. So we need to start investing now. We need to start reducing emissions at the same time we invest in third-way technologies so they're at scale when we use them. I tried to do a, uh, an assessment of what I thought, a conservative assessment, I should say, of what I thought third-way technologies might be doing in terms of CO2 reductions by 2050. And I came up with a figure that was around about 40% of current emissions. If we can achieve that, it will be stunningly important because it'll help us avoid that two degrees of warming. Radio EcoShock. We are listening to Tim Flannery, author of The Weathermakers, and now his new book, Atmosphere of Hope. This is Radio EcoShock. But when I really asked myself honestly whether I'd done a good job with that, I, I began to doubt it because um, I, I thought, I don't know what 2050 is going to be like. I really don't. The only way I can begin to come at it is to throw myself back a century. So let me imagine I'm living in 1915 and I'm trying to imagine 1950 rather than living in 2015 and trying to imagine 2050. And if you do that thought experiment, it's very interesting because in my city of Melbourne in 1915, horse-drawn power was the power on the streets. There may have been a few very early motor vehicles, but horse-drawn power was doing most of the work. The maps that people would have looked at to understand the world in school in 1915 were sort of colour-coded maps that were of countries that were colour-coded according to the empires of Europe that had been there for centuries. There wasn't a single communist country on those maps. You know, the war that was being fought, and my grandfather fought in the, the First World War, the war that he fought, was being fought with cavalry charges in 1915, in part. There wasn't a single tank on a battlefield anywhere in the world in 1915. There was a few biplanes flying up, you know, around the place, but the, and they were used for surveillance, but the generals were saying, oh, they're not really as good as the cavalry surveillance we used to get in the good old days, you know. So imagine that mindset, and then imagine 1950. Nuclear weapons, jet aircraft, half the world living under communism. To someone living in 1915, that would have read as science fiction, right? The changes were just too vast. So when I think about 2050, I think about it in those terms, but also with the knowledge that social, technological and environmental change have all accelerated this century. So... When I did a conservative estimate of what might be happening in 2015, I have to admit to myself, I think it is really well and truly conservative. I suspect we will be astonished by what our children will do in 2015, and they'll do it with tools that will utterly transform the total economy. The opportunity that's been created with the tech boom and the, the green uh, energy boom so far will look like small beer compared with the challenge that Third Way presents, because we can count the outcoming gigatons. We know the scale. Um, we know how broad-based these technologies are. They cover almost every sector of the economy. And we know that you know, if we want to reduce atmospheric CO2 by just one part per million, that's 18 gigatons we've got to take out of the atmosphere. You know, we're, we're already pretty much at 400 parts per million. We know that we started the Industrial Revolution at 280 parts per million. 
the scale of the challenge is massive, but I have no doubt that the third way can deliver real outcomes. So thank you very much. I'll finish there and take questions. Expect to be most affected and which parts, different parts of the world do you expect to be most affected? Oh, that's a really big question. Um, Australia is going to be very severely affected. We're a flat, dry continent, and that's bad news. I think coastal Asia, particularly low-lying coastal Asia, is going to be badly affected, whether it be Bangladesh or coastal China. Anywhere with really large population densities that's got a food issue, also I think are running into trouble, so China and India as well, be my shorthand. Yeah, in these various best-to-worst-case scenarios, um, the prime variable seems to be how much continued CO2 we are putting into the atmosphere. Mm. What I'm really not hearing enough is also the effect of continued and past deforestation, especially the rainforests. And my question to you is whether these scenarios, all the way from the best-to-worst-case scenarios, assume that we are not logging any more rainforests or or whether the assumption is indeed that much of the rainforest will be continued to be logged as it's currently. So I wonder how that variable enters into these projections. Look, um, in terms of where the greenhouse gases are coming from, about 80% currently are coming from the burning of fossil fuels and the other 20% are coming from other sources, which includes deforestation. So deforestation is an important part of the solution and there are mechanisms under the, uh, the Paris Agreement, which we're hoping to broker, including RED, which is reduced deforestation, which will start to address those issues. But it's, it's part of a problem which is much deeper with, with the fossil fuel use, agriculture and so forth as well. Yeah, I think you're, when you pointed out many of these tech, new technologies, their way will depend on energy. And when I look at the world and I say, well, yeah, if we had um, lots of cheap energy on a global scale, say something like uh, nuclear fusion actually working according to its original promise, then we could do all these things. But a lot of us are pretty skeptical that it's going to happen. And you know, mm-hmm. can uh, solar and wind and geo and all those things actually scale up in an economy which is where the fossil fuels don't even exist. We yeah. have biofuels, a few of these things. Right now, we're building this stuff on top of a yeah. fossil fuel economy. So how do you see we can actually make this energy there on a cheap scale yeah. when you don't have this previous superstructure sure. to keep it going? That's a great question. And, look, I've, I've got a little bit of expertise in that area because I worked with Siemens on their sustainability advisory board for a decade, and Germany really is in the lead of dealing with that question. Um, what, what they've made a pledge to do away with um, nuclear power and to do away with uh, fossil fuels. And so they're right now kind of working out how that's done. The, the, the national plan is called the Energy Gewender, Energy Turning. And um, they're, they're looking at the, the whole grid. So how do you create these distributed grids? What are the sources of energy? What do you do with excess energy when you have it? Um, how do you manage demand? Can you switch things off for very small periods of time across sectors in ways that has no impact on production or whatever you're doing with the energy but, but saves you from um, spikes in demand? What's happening with electric vehicles? How do they work in? And there's a lot of detail in that, that work. Um, I'll just give you a few examples. They've modelled what, happened, what would happen to Germany if every transport vehicle in the country was electrified? How much extra demand would that add to the system? turns out it's not very much. It's only about 20% additional demand. But you're getting this massive storage op- opportunity uh, coming off the back of that. 
Um, all of the smart grid stuff, turning things on and off, that's already a reality. Um, there's enough wind and solar in Germany now that uh, they have what they call wavy baseload. So, you know, there's always some power in the system coming from those sources because they're very widely distributed and it's either sunny or windy somewhere across the range. At times when there's a lot of electricity in the system, there's some very interesting things happen, happening. Some companies are taking up that ch very cheap electricity and using it to experiment uh, with ways of getting CO2 out of the atmosphere. How do we turn CO2 into products? As I said, you need energy to do that. But the uh, University of Hamburg and Siemens and others are now looking at that. Now, one experiment that, that's being done at Hamburg is... Uh, taking a weak solution of CO2 in water, putting an electric current through it and seeing what you get. And you get some very, very interesting things. So I think when we think about this transition, it's not just cost but also opportunity. And I think the German experience shows us we can do it. It can be done, but it is, it's, it's, um, it's an, it, it'll be an utter change in the way that we use and supply electricity. Uh, thank you for your optimism. I hope it's warranted. Uh, well, me one too. thing I saw in a recent Scientific American publication that I had never seen anywhere before that seems to perhaps it might fit in your third way is if, and apparently this is possible uh, ultimately, is to, is to treat our food crops, to change them from being annuals to perennials. Mm -hmm. And somehow this would be a tremendous carbon sink. And I've only seen this in one place. So I was wondering if you'd heard about it and what you thought about the idea. Yeah, look, that is uh, it, the basic concept is is one of the foundation stones of a, an Australian government initiative that I can talk about in some detail. It's a it's called the Carbon Farming Initiative, and uh, what what the Australian government is doing is rewarding farmers with financial rewards uh, for the promotion and uh, of, of perennial plants. And the reason they do it is that the root masses of perennial grasses are so massive for many of them, and they constitute an absolutely massive carbon store. So uh, if you can keep those perennial grasses healthy and fit by um, manipulating your grazing regimes on land or, or using what's called zero-till agriculture where you don't remove the perennials but you plant some of the annuals between them, um, you can get some really great carbon benefits. So I don't know about the, I guess, genetic modification of annuals into perennials, but um, I know that the general principle of using perennial grasses to store carbon is a sound one. You, you didn't mention uh, population growth at all in your talk. Uh, how big a factor do you think uh, it will be in uh, future CO2 levels, et cetera? Sure. Uh, do you think, and do you think it's worth approaching as a separate item itself? I think in this country we're looking at, we've just been told by the Pew Research Organization a couple months ago, we should be looking at a by. 2065, in 50 years, a uh, 110 million population increase in this country, which yeah. is our whole population essentially west of the Mississippi River. Should we be alarmed yeah. enough to do something about it? Look, I think um, population is a, is a big issue, and we should be alarmed about it at the global level. And we know what the solution is to, or part of the solution to the population um, issue. You know, we know that if we give... Uh, women in developing countries access to uh, better economic opportunities and to um, the, the medical resources that they, they need and a better lifestyle, that they have fewer kids. We, we've seen the latest data from Ethiopia shows that that's happening. I mean, Ethi it, you know, a decade or so ago, Ethiopia had, I think, an average birth rate of 7.7. .7. It's now down around 4 
because things have improved in Ethiopia. So we know how to solve the problem. We need to focus on doing that. But that is only part of the population problem. You know, the, the projections for, from demography are that by 2050 we'll have a population somewhere between 8 and 10 billion. Now, if we really get on top of this issue of bettering the lives of women in developing countries, it'll be closer to 8. If we let it go, it'll be closer to 10. So that's part of it. But a big part of that growth, too, is just people are living longer. And that's... We can't ask people to get off, you know. I mean, just, it's, that's, that's something we're kind of stuck with. So, so I think the population's going to grow. It'll be up 8 or beyond. Um, and then there's the issue of immigration, you know. Do, do, and, that, and that's a... That's another very fraught and difficult issue, and I, I, you know, I, I, I think uh, probably that has a place in a much wider form than this. But, but in shorthand, yes, we should be dealing with that issue, particularly of the birth rate in, in poorest countries. Uh, I volunteered to get off by 2050. So. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you interviewed. I hope on, you don't regret. <laughs> I heard you interviewed on. Uh, I think it was uh, Philadelphia WYY uh, Radio yes. Times, and you. Spent quite a lot of time talking about something called chiller boxes in Antarctica. That's right. And I, and I, didn't, I didn't understand that solution exactly. I wonder if you have time to talk about it here. And I was particularly concerned, like, once you withdraw heat from the atmosphere, where do you put it? Yeah, That's sure. Yeah. Look, the, the, um, this, this idea of chiller boxes in the Antarctic uh, came about through some astrobiologists who looked at Mars and noticed that it has ice caps made of frozen CO2 and they basically ask the question why don't we have CO2 ice caps on Earth and the answer is that it doesn't get quite cold enough over the Antarctic plateau to, to, to let CO2 fall out of the air as snow. Average temperatures over the Antarctic are about 50, minus 57 degrees Celsius and they need to be minus 78.5 before the CO2 falls out of the atmosphere as, as frozen snow. Um, but it does get down to minus 90 occasionally in Antarctica. So, you know, when it gets cold, it'll, it'll snow CO2. Uh, unless the CO2 is buried, it just sublimates again and goes back up into the atmosphere. So the idea these, these scientists had was to say, let's uh, build some really big chiller boxes, say 100 metre cubed, dig a bit of snow out under them, uh, and, and power them using wind power, because we know that wind power works in the Antarctic. Um, it's already used at most of the, the research stations in Antarctica. Um, and, you know, you'd need about half of the installed wind power currently existing in Germany to draw a gigaton of CO2 out of the atmosphere using this method. So the idea is you chill the air in a chiller box a few tens of degrees beyond what it is now, um, let the stuff fall out of snow and then bury it with ice and it would just stay there as a, as a, a captured CO2 effectively. Um, you know, this is a desktop study so far. We don't, you know, th there are so many questions around it, you know, you, don't, you, we, you wouldn't know where to begin to think about it. But I do think that my initial response was negative right, to that. I thought, you know, the Antarctic's the last wilderness. I don't know whether I want chiller boxes and wind turbines all over it. But I thought, that sounds so nimby. It's like not in my backyard. And, and, you know, the cost of that might be that by 2050, my kids and your kids might be desperate for solutions to get CO2 out of the air. And unless we've done the due diligence, at least, to see whether this is possible or what the downsides of it are, we may deprive them of that opportunity. So in the book I argue that we need to really investigate this and see, is it feasible? Are there downsides to it? Uh, what, you know, how would we go about doing it? What are the costs? What are the legal ramifications and issues? Unless we start doing that now, we won't have that technology mature by 2050 if we really need it. So I just think we need to do due diligence on it.
Yeah, we've, uh, we've only talked about the scientific uh, solutions to global warming. There's also an economic solution. Mm-hmm. In fact, in Washington State, we have, I don't know if you're familiar with our I-732 initiative, which would impose yeah. a revenue-neutral carbon tax. Oh, the first state to do it, and British Columbia is already doing yeah. it successfully. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you believe that as soon at some point the world, or at least some enough countries in the world, will realize to attach a cost equal to the damage being done yeah. in a tax-neutral way? Absolutely. Look, I do talk about that in the book a bit, I, and I, I just do a basic thing. It says, how much does it cost on average to get CO2 out of the atmosphere? You know, given our current situation, it's reasonable to assume $100 a tonne for getting it out on average across all of these approaches. Um, so shouldn't we be charging $100 a tonne to put the stuff in, you know, as a cost, as a tax base? I think it's kind of reasonable. Um, but, you know, and I, in terms of BC, I'm very familiar with that approach because I met Gordon Campbell um, as he was considering that and we had a discussion about it. And the way they did it was so smart. It was good, you know, give people the money back through a tax break. The Washington State Initiative is exactly modelled on that same approach. Yeah. Well, I think if you can do that, it is brilliant. We uh, introduced a carbon tax in Australia and didn't do that give back or that very transparent give back. And the carbon tax was repealed. We're the only country on earth to have repealed a carbon tax or a price on carbon. I've got to say to my shame. So I do think that it's very smart to give people, cut a cheque and let them see it in the mail. That's what they're getting back for this. Yeah, or what, just as long as it's transparent, a way that people can see that they're getting that back. Hi. A little bit more of a societal question. In this town, there's been uh, quite a lot of focus on uh, institutions such as the University of Washington and the Gates Foundation about the importance of them to join the fossil fuel divestment movement. And I just wanted to ask your opinion on the fossil fuel divestment movement and if you think that is an effect of means by which to expedite the sort of transition and change that, that we need to see. Yeah, that's a great question. And look, I'm not, I'm not an economist, so it's hard for me to evaluate the actual impact of divestment. You know, people in the fossil fuel industry says, or they say, oh, it doesn't matter because someone else will buy the shares. That may or may not be true, I don't know. But what I do know is that that divestment movement is really removing the social licence of those corporations to operate as they currently operate. And that is hugely impactful. That's probably the biggest single thing. Uh, and I think that divestment is, a, for that reason alone, is, is hugely powerful and important. And I think that it's, it's, it'll be one of the game changers, I think, in, in, in coming years. Thank you. Thank you. So the Gates Foundation should divest. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> That was Dr. Tim Flannery speaking at the Seattle Town Hall, November 12, 2015. We owe this recording to Mike McCormick of Talking Stick TV and the host of Media Matters Radio Show. This has been the Beyond Zero Emissions Easter broadcast. Thanks to Alex Smith of Radio EcoShock in Vancouver for permission to rebroadcast this fine talk. You're listening to Radio 3CR. Now stay tuned for Save Albert Park. Has your organisation been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $110 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest-running activist radio station. 
3CR gives access and training to communities traditionally denied a voice in the mainstream media. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 9419 and become an organisational subscriber. Show, Show your, your love, love. 3CR. 3CR. 